0: Welcome to the Cannabis Data Science Meetup Group. Wanted to share with you some of the research and how eager cannabis data scientists like yourself can help out. I'll go ahead and sort of jump into the material that I wanted to talk about. But before I do that, why don't I give all of you a chance to talk about what you may want to talk about? In no particular order, maybe start in my top corner. Rick, welcome to the group be curious to hear about what you'd like to get out of cannabis data and maybe some interesting projects you're working on and things that you would like to see move forward. Sure. Uh,
1: So, hey, everyone, my name is Rick. Um, I have uh, a background working professionally in in big data uh, in the healthcare industry. So, uh, and I'm also a longtime lover of cannabis, um, whose state has been recreational here for a few years. Uh, so I've taken advantage of that and uh, began cultivating, and 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 most of the passion has gone into breeding. That is my primary interest in in uh, data is compiling uh, as much as I can and creating relations for strains and effects. And I um, started looking into it, saw what you guys were doing, and it was you know right right on the same page as is, is what I'm um, looking into right now. Ultimately, I'd like to to build an app. That is uh, geared towards breeders and facility owners that uh, allow them to use their data more efficiently. I work with some of the facilities uh, in Michigan here and uh, see just all the untapped potential and and data going out the window. So, um, working on something to fix that, at least here locally.
0: Simply phenomenal, Rick. Since you weren't here last week, I'll go ahead and recap. All of the varieties are of quite interest, right? So, go to any retailer and they're going to be selling by variety. So it's a long-time tradition in the cannabis industry. And what we like to do is marry sort of folklore and things that people use every day to statistics. And so if people are using these strain names every day, then we, we're gonna see if there's any rhyme or reason to it. And it seems that, of course, underlying this is right the chemical variability And where does the chemical variability come from? Well, that may come from growing conditions, right? It may come from genetics, could come from probably both. Love that you're trying to understand this and then you're following it through, right? From seed to effect, um, right? Because, right, not only do you go seed to sale, but what happens after sale, people ingest this and presumably have some sort of effects. And we're trying to determine, What, if any, are those effects? And we kind of hit on last week that at least I think the appropriate way to go about this is just having just the null hypothesis that, okay, let's just say that maybe cannabis has no effect on people. Of course, there's lots of evidence to the contrary. So, you know, that may be a a easily uh, falsifiable hypothesis, but that's a, you know, that's a good starting point. So then, right, you'll want to one by one, see what effects these various compounds people are ingesting or having. At least that's the way I think a nice scientific way to go about this would be. It's brilliant. You're right on the uh, right on the money here. Right, this is what people are working on, um, and I think you actually have a pretty sophisticated uh, knowledge of this because, as I'll point out. To you today just say taking into the into consideration that are, there are different varieties of cannabis is actually non uh is apparent to, to to many and may not be included in the conversation and that has implications but I'll, po- I'll point some of that out later today but enough of me rambling isaac good to see you today curious if you have any projects that you know, you want to see moved forward here, here in the coming.
2: Good to see y'all again, and uh, I'm Isaac. I work for MCR Labs, uh, located in uh, Massachusetts, cannabis testing lab. Uh, well, this is actually for both myself and the place I work for. Kind of my main focus is on lab shopping. I mean, for the for my employer, definitely uh, as we're trying to do proper science We're losing business to those who are uh, uh, fudging numbers. And uh, for uh, myself, I mean, uh, as a cannabis consumer, this is just, I'm seeing a lot of health risk and just consumer fraud that is uh, rampant in the industry. And uh, I feel I'm in a particular position that allow me to, do something about it. So uh, yeah, my main, uh, uh, and uh, I, I am actually uh, working on uh, fraud detection uh, and actually I'm here today with a question. I'm hoping to probe your, uh, uh, your brain uh, to see your thoughts uh, on that. So uh, it's about uh, using Benford's law. And I think you have, uh, uh, I would assume you have at least heard of it. It's about the distribution of uh, naturally occurring numbers. Contrary to intuition is, it follows a kind of a exponential uh, curve that there is more ones than twos. Uh, and uh, But for fraud detection in cannabis, uh, the numbers specifically the THC values are all clumped together around 20 percent right and that's uh if you go from the textbook uh uh kind of manual that's a no-no for application of benford's law but then uh I i think i found a uh uh method or operation that is to raise the numbers to uh, a high power, uh, fourth or fifth power. By doing that, it seems to be able to stretch the numbers into several magnitudes, into a realm where uh, Benford's law apply. So the most uh, straightforward case is uh, take integers from say one to a thousand, Benford's law won't apply, right? Uh, Because it's sequential, numbers, but if you uh, cube those numbers, Benford's law does appear. So I'm just wondering uh, the possibility of even uh, stretching the, uh, the power of Benford's law by allowing uh, the operation of raising the data set uh, to a high power to artificially increase the, uh, uh, the magnitude. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, hear uh, your thought on that direction. And uh, also, in addition, uh, as uh, my colleague Yasha just joined, uh, we, we were thinking of, of another reason that, well, a, as we all know, THC values has been rising for a while. And uh, the easiest explanation is, uh, well, th- there could be a lot of, Explanations. Uh, lab shopping is definitely one, but there could be also uh, that the growers are getting better at uh, uh, cultivating, or it could be that uh, they are simply getting uh, better at selecting the best gene to grow. So we're interested in finding out how much each of those uh, potential causes contribute to the uh, uh, graduate growth of thc content that we've been seeing
0: and the washington data should show this right yashi what was your input there at the end
2: uh the wash the data that you guys
3: have from washington should should answer two of those questions whether um a single uh, is it that genetics that yield higher thc are being used more more often and that leading to average of higher potency or Is a single strain tested by the same grower at the same lab growing in potency or staying the same?
0: I'm going to basically let you in on the golden way that you can actually go about attempting to answer this question, right? You came here, so here it is, right? Ultimately, the problem you're going to run into is, well, how do you identify which lab results are fraudulent? and which ones are not, right? And so basically, at the end of the day, right, you'd want a zero or one, zero, not fraudulent, one, fraudulent. Because ultimately, you're you're going to need to predict if a lab results fraudulent or not. Um, And I think, yes, exactly, you could use Bamford's law. Um, So a simple way, right, if you'd built this logit regression, so zero, one, Trying to predict if it's fraudulent or not you could say use bamford's law you could you say you could maybe maybe you know this better than i i'm just kind of conjecturing here but maybe as your regressors you would use things like i i I don't know how you would incorporate this into your regressors but somehow have the number of digits or something of that sort actually in fact i don't know how you would build out the regression but the first the first and that actually may be sort of the 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 beauty or or not the beauty but the the novel insight you have, right? Maybe if you wanted to patent some fraud detection device, you'd just have a really good algorithm. Well, first things first, you need the zeros or ones. And so now that I've been teasing it, well, how do you actually get about getting that data set? Well, it so happens that I do believe this data exists and you can get your hands on it. In that We've been looking at the Washington State data. That's because Washington State has a pretty open Freedom of Information Act request. Um, So you can get these data points. Specifically, um, what what you'd be looking for are, as some of you may have known, um, if you look in the the news, the former laboratory in Washington State, Praxis Laboratory, was, was caught falsifying samples and you know these lab results were entered into the traceability system which you can then get those those results that would basically be your subset of known fraudulent results so that basically you would just say okay you know these are the lab results that we know are fraudulent one the rest of them you would assume are non fraudulent but as we'll point out, that's a, a big assumption, right? Because we don't actually know for certainty, right, that none of the other laboratories were, you know not, were uh, not falsifying lab results. And um, so, so that's sort of a, a hiccup in your analysis. But you could potentially just, I guess look at the praxis laboratory lab results. And so then for that time window, you would just say okay these are all the lab results that praxis laboratory tested that weren't falsified these are the ones that were falsified is there any way to detect to a significant degree of certainty that those were in fact falsified and that's where your your training your your you know your prediction model would come in so you say oh you know uh, and, th- and that's, I guess, uh, yet another tricky part. So so that's at least the first tricky part, solved How do you get your training data set? The second tricky part is how do you actually predict? Um, so that's actually going to... Uh, I'll have to chew on that, but maybe you, you've thought about that. Uh, so These, so any questions th- at this point, Yasha? Th- or in- there's, there's just
3: multiple ways to cheat by a lab. Like, there's th- the way that they... Prep the sample, just fudging numbers. It, there can be probably I don't know four, f- four or five different ways by which they could do so. So we would need examples of each to be the ones, and then a exactly. clean data set that has that's just definitely, definitely clean, right?
0: And that's a good point. And so that would. Essentially, be I think we kind of mentioned on this last week where there's so many variables, right? And each of these are something that you would control for. And this is the thing about statistical models: is right, they're very laser focused in on the data at hand, right? So if you trained your model on data, and you only had, like you said, the one way that fraud was commit, you know, committed, then you would miss potentially other ways. Um, so maybe they are somehow preserving the the digits. So maybe they would somehow preserve Bamford's law. Something else is going on. Um, so that's a possibility. And in fact, that may just be where we just kind of need to expand the data set. There is the one case in Washington state where I think you could actually get the data. There have been other cases of fraud, like in Michigan. I think there was a case that maybe debated. I think that one may be contested. And then I think there could have been uh, an occurrence in Nevada and perhaps California. But ultimately I think what you would what you'd want to seek are the results that you know are fraudulent versus the ones that you suspect aren't and see if there's any systematic difference. Because otherwise and this is actually unfortunately what we've kind of seen is basically Maybe not wrong, but it, I don't think it was fruitful. Um, but basically, like in Washington State, right, you would just see people take simple averages by lab and just kind of com- complain that a particular lab may have, you know, high on average results. Which, you know, it's it's not a good look, right? If you're if you're producing results that are significantly different than another laboratory, but that I don't think. Uh, Right there's uh, many ways that people can go about explaining that away. Right, they say, oh, you know, good growers will choose our lab. As much as it may be like a signal of like, oh, maybe we should look here or look there. I don't think there is much, you know, concrete evidence because the the, the other thing to kind of consider is there's sort of permitted ways that people can kind of push the numbers up or maybe they're not permitted but they're definitely kind of grade lines so for example i i don't know if this is this wouldn't really affect total thc or cbd but i know there was an effort to just add as many cannabinoids as you can to your panel right because if you're testing for cbl and cbt and cbca and cbd dv so sort of just the more cannabinoids that would just push up the total cannabinoids so that was kind of happening that's kind of the case in california so once again i think there's many factors going on but that's definitely one of them is there's definitely been a push to increase the panel which isn't actually necessarily a bad thing but uh, as you pointed out, there may be other other things going on.
3: With that one specifically, so the more cannabinoids you have, the likely the lower THC will be, because it'll get rid of the coillusion problem, especially with delta eight, for example, that cools with delta nine. And uh, in a article about the Was- what happened in Washington, uh, it does reference a price point at which buyers by cannabis which is at 20 percent thc and i think thc by most dispensaries is defined as thc plus thca uh, so what, what they think wants is and i think the selling the the number that most people look to is how much thc is in there not how many total cannabinoids are in there so i think what they're trying to do is specifically how can we increase thc for that final sale to be higher
0: i may need some clarification on the your second point, but the first point was actually clever in that you would actually exactly expect as you add more cannabinoids for the THCA or Delta A or so on and so forth to diminish because you can actually see legitimate cases of this. So for example, in Michigan, we had a lot of PSI labs data and you could see back in 2015, 2016, they were just fundamentally testing cannabis different. I mean, for example, I believe they were even testing it with uh, GC. So they started off testing, you know, just by GC, right? Because you're just, they were mostly just trying to get total THC, total CBD. Um, And so then, right, you move to HPLC, The numbers are going to be fundamentally different, right? Right. You would still expect the total THC and CBD to be in the same ballpark. They're still being measured differently, and then of course the time effects. So yes, over this, it's it's real interesting data. I think I shared it with you last week, but I'll make sure that you have a hold of it because the PSI Labs data I think is pretty pretty good. Do we know for certain that nothing was falsified? No. We kind of have to go off of heuristics. And f- from seeing the, you know, the scientific director um, speak and whatnot, I don't have any like reasons to, to believe they're uh, putting out wrong data. Their data is interesting to observe over time because you see methods change, and you can observe cultivators in Michigan. It appears to be getting better at their craft over time. Oh, yes, and then you raise the interesting question is, and we could actually look at this, we could do a regression. One of our explanatory variables would be number of cannabinoids. So how many cannabinoids are on your panel? Is it eight? Is it 12? Is it 16? And then your variable of interest would say be thca um and then you could i guess try to try to disentangle that and say okay you know as we add analytes to our panel do we detect more or less of these various components you're smiling wait does this sound silly or um... no, no no
3: i think i think it's perfect so long as the data is clean as in if you can take out if you're specifically talking about psi's data and we believe that their data is accurate then yes but if we were to look at let's say all of washington data then uh, we would first have to remove any lab data from labs that may not be trusted because that that would mess up the the whole experiment
0: and we may not know necessarily the pan- the how many cannabinoids each of the labs are offering at each time. I think it's bet I think that analysis is best, uh, lab by lab, or you could always basically have a lab specific, uh, fixed effect. I don't know if I've explicitly recommended these before, but you definitely want to have lab specific fixed effects if you're doing analysis for multiple labs. So, for example, Rick when you're doing genetic analysis, say you want to do some prediction on the effects of your strains or this or that. You know, if you're getting data from a bunch of different, I I would, you know, you may want to get data from multiple labs. And then if you do so, you may want to basically control for lab by lab variants. Back to the topic at hand, I think is, you know, what is all the different ways I guess fraud can be committed? Or in this, it may not necessarily be fraud. For example, a consideration that I had, I don't know if this is the most likely, but it could be a co founding variant, is, and I don't want to throw them under the bus because these are the hardest, in my opinion, the hardest working people at the laboratory are. Unfortunately, you know, the analysts may have sort of uh, like a pressure like, oh, you know, the, the director wants us to have really high lab results. And they may just be kind of, you know, heavy handed, so to speak, you know, not intentionally, but just kind of introduce bias of their own because they may just say like, oh, you know, all my peers, all their measurements are coming out at 30%. Maybe I'll just be a, a little. Basically, the 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 way the analyst, that would the way that would end up happening is oh, you'd just be maybe a little heavy-handed on the amount that you sample out, and you'd be a little light-handed on basically the amount of methanol you would add in. I don't think that would be the primary way that 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 you know fraud would be occurring, but it would just be kind of something to take into consideration is unfortunately, like I said, these are hardworking people, may not be getting paid the most, and so they may just have sort of this pressure to, to weigh things heavy, so to speak. Um, but I don't think that's the, I just think it's just something to consider and then, uh, of course, just outright fraud, just outright changing the numbers, Benford's law. Which surprisingly, I, I never really pl- played around with this before, so Isaac, may, if you have any insights or maybe one meetup, if you want to share any luck or work that you've done with this, I'd be excited to learn more about this. the The final variant here is just Um, And in fact, this is, I think, what people complain the most, or I've heard people complain the most about in Oregon, is based, and in fact, uh, California recently too, is basically uh, the cultivator would send in a non random sample or potentially even an, an adulterated sample. The idea is, say, in Washington state, you've got to take a random sample from a five pound lot. And I think they'll, the cultivator cultivators will even get audited so the auditor will come by and say okay how do you sample from your sop and they say oh you know we'll just take you know five random nugs from this five pound lot but it's sort of like okay well you know how do they sample when the auditor's not there you know are they just picking the choicest buds in oregon there's been claims that people will like sprinkle keef or even I've heard people will even I and this is where I say uh so there's a couple things people will say oh well they'll paint them so they'll like get a cannabis concentrate and you know lather lather that on well then you run into the the situation well well say you've got a cannabis flower with concentrate lathered on it well a, a good analyst at the laboratory, You know, they're going to look at this under a microscope to to look at it for contaminants or, you know, foreign matter. They'll they'll see, oh, this has been adulterated. Well, now this analyst is in, uh, right, once again, you've got a person who's getting paid, you know, the the bare minimum. Okay, they see this sample, it's been adulterated. Well, that's going to be a a real... Part in the pun, because it's really no joking matter, but they're going to be in a sticky situation because, okay, what do you do? Do you now, fail? and this is actually my recommendation, is the lab should then fail that sample for per for foreign matter. They should say, oh, this sample's been adulterated. We're going to fail this. Well, now that's now in the traceability system. The state's going to say, you, what you did, what, 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 you, you know, you adulterated this sample, the cultivator could potentially be in big trouble. You know, they may lose, they may, they may lose their license. They could easily lose their license over something like that. What seemed like standard practice from the cultivator, right? They say, oh, all the other cultivators are adulterating our product, we'll adulterate it. They may lose their license. And then the lab, once again, is they're in a difficult position because I've I've heard labs say that oh you know we're not the the potency police and I kind of cringed at hearing that because well they, they actually kind the kind of are uh, right because I was thinking about it the other day and it's there's a reason why laboratories have to get accredited and Yasha you could probably attest to this and Isaac this is actually the point you raised at the beginning is. It's kind of a, a bit of a a privilege, so to speak, to be a licensed laboratory. You, you know, you're there for, for the, uh, the, the public's sake. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of responsibility there. You know, that's, I think, the reason why it's not cheap to start a laboratory. And the reason why you have to go through these accreditations is because you're the ones who do have to make the tough call at the end of the day and say, yep, these guys sent in an adulterated sample. It's tough but we're going to have to now fail you for far, foreign matter. They're probably going to take your license away. You know, that that's just a really, really tough call. And like I said, it, they may not lose their license, right? So they, depending on the state, maybe they'll get a warning. Maybe they'll say, okay, we're going to give you a warning. It may, it may vary by state. You know, it, it's a tough call. Who, who Who's responsible? But I, I don't think that's something that the, the laboratory should just... Uh, pretend they didn't see. So that that's sort of my take on it. I've suggested this in the past, where, okay, we found this big, ugly problem. And instead of just stopping there, let's actually offer a solution. It's not going to be the best solution in the world, but it can be a starting point. And from what I've seen, a simple, effective, cost-effective way to go about solving this is just say you have to keep the samples for 90 days or you have to keep the sample for 60 days this imposes a cost on the labs because they'll have to invest in refrigeration or what have you but that's a relatively minor cost than some of the alternatives and then then the idea is okay if there's any question Later on down the line, then you can come back and check the sample. And basically, if something tests in the store at you know forty percent for flour, you can just go back to the laboratory and just say, okay, you know, can I can I in fact see this? Is it obvious that it was adulterated? If it's not obvious, then oh well, you know, and then. Or, or then ask the laboratory uh, to, te- uh, to 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 do a confirmation run. But, but question before I just keep droning on?
3: Oh, I, I just want to weigh in. Do you mind if I just oh, weigh in by all, the last piece? means, please. So um, let's say in Massachusetts, we, we view pre-rolled joints of the flower that is tested for that as flower. It's, it's not separated by testing category, it's, it is that. And then sometimes the, stuff that makes pre-roll joints is a combination of flour and some concentrate and it's submitted to us as flour and then it's definitely altered and to me from i guess the the ethical standpoint is this is what they submitted this is what we're testing this is the results that we're going to give them and it accurately says what's in the product that was given to us and accurately represents the product that consumers will end up buying if that product that consumers end up buying is also uh, given the extra, whatever was put into the, the testing sample. And that if let's say there's a grower that wants to hack the system, wants to send in a sample that will have more, that will have concentrate tossed in it just for higher results, If they do it just once, shame on them. They absolutely shouldn't. And if the results are ridiculous, then I think a secret shopper program would yield that, okay, the regulators bought a product, they got it tested and the results differ very much uh, between what consumers buy and what the original results were. And that should lead to an analysis of the data. Does it show that this is an outlier or is this a consistent thing?
0: Well, I can surely hearing you tell how it is. Exactly. So I think states just need to be conscious and explicitly say how this needs to be handled. So for example, in Washington state, they just say, if you add anything to it, it's technically a mixed product. I don't see anything wrong if you want to call it a mixed product, but I think the idea behind the testing was, what. Whatever you send in should be representative of what you're selling. If you send in, you know, flour sprinkled with keef on it, as long as that's what, you know, the label says, and depending on what state you're in, you may call it a mixed product, then, yeah, by all means. I um, mean, in fact, people have really creative products, right? There's a famous product, the Moon Rocks, and that actually is just exactly that, just the cannabis flower uh, coated in oil and rolled around in keef. So people will specifically buy those. But that's fine. But, you know, if you're selling moon rocks, you know, send in representative moon rocks to be tested. I don't think it's uh, 100% okay to just, you know, say you're selling flour. Because I think the big complaint is people just get low-quality flour, you know, sprinkle beef on it. What they send in isn't what they're selling, so to speak. And, and then
2: Isaac, question? Uh, yeah, I just want to... Kind of putting my two cents on this, it seems to me that there really is two separate issues. The first is whether the sample that's tested is representative of whatever is being sold, and the second being the type of product, like pre roll, as Yasha was saying. Uh, I mean, there, I mean, cannabis market in general is very new, and there's always new products being made, and it's, I mean, we have categorization like flower extracts concentrates but pre-roll is blurring the line between flour and extracts right and that's more of a regulatory problem or categorization than representative so I just want to separate those two issues as um, as they are rather than having them mixed together
0: 100% agreed and this is once again I think, We said this last week, but uh, it helps to to reiterate this week is that's why we're talking about these things is it just helps to say them out loud and formalize them. As I shared uh, this piece of policy with you out of Washington State, a lot of the language either doesn't take product types into consideration or when they do, they do it in maybe not the most logical fashion, right? So just the fact that you pointed out that, oh, there's actually two distinct problems going on here is helpful because now right, regulators can take that into consideration that, oh, yes, we need to be explicit about oh, how are different product types being sampled and tested. You can say, oh, take a representative batch from five pounds of flour. Well, then also have sampling rules for joints, have sampling rules for mixed products, concentrates, so on and so forth. And then also you may want to, the states may want to be explicit about about sampling, you know, what does adulteration? What does that mean? What are the consequences? Who is responsible? Because as I was saying, the labs are in a difficult situation, right? If all the other right So for example, Massachusetts, right? And in fact, uh, I just saw this today. so right, if all the other labs in Massachusetts, you all want to be on the same page because just today, I saw that RM labs in Colorado, has decided to close. And the reason they stated was they simply couldn't stay competitive because they think other labs in the state aren't following the rules and they were doing their best to do testing by the book and they just couldn't stay competitive. And so, Isaac, you mentioned at the beginning, like, you know, you're trying to solve this problem. And, you know, I I applaud you for doing that. And it, it matters. I do think, you know, MCR labs can be profitable in the long term just doing nice ethical testing um it's just how do you get through the all this short-term noise with you know maybe someone sets up shop and they they're cutting corners so how do you survive the short term so I, I love that I love that you're thinking about this and working on it any more thoughts while I think if I have any more final thoughts real quick
3: Isaac did you happen to bring up the question that was asked on Friday uh, with what model would best, what could be used to for identifying anomalies within these kind of data sets?
2: No, I haven't uh, asked it, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I very much appreciate if the group have any uh, ideas. Uh, it's essentially we're seeing a, uh, in Massachusetts data, there is likely a uh, gap of flowers around with around 18 to 19 percent concentration and there's a spike of flowers around 20 percent uh, THC concentration as we as uh, as I'm sure we all know uh, flowers with a it's like a threshold flowers above that sells much better and I'm just uh, wondering uh, if 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 you're aware of any, statistical method that uh, is a good measurement of uh, this uh, kind of gap?
0: This is a a phenomenal question. And perhaps when we'll have to chew on more for next week, I'll just go ahead and give you my, my hot take right now and then think about this more thoroughly over the next week because this seems like this is a pressing issue. My hot take is, right, I think you were already on a fruitful approach with Bamford's law. I would like to just re- 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 reiterate what I was <laughs> saying at the beginning, where I think ultimately to for certain predict you know fraudulent values, you'll need ones that you know are fraudulent, right? Because, well, maybe you won't need them for certain, I guess, but uh, I think that would be helpful is, okay, what do fraudulent lab results look like compared to non-fraudulent? And as I was saying, the data set I think that you can get a hold of are the practice laboratory results because you know for certain which ones were falsified, and you can compare those to ones that more were probably not falsified. So you could see if there's any systematic difference there. And that's where Bamford's Law could kick in. So potentially, there are digit differences with the falsified ones. And then finally, this was something that we had hit on in the past because Rick, once again, getting back to genetics, we were actually using a some sort of, I'm not going to get the name right, but some sort of multivariate difference in means test. It was the last last episode of statistics we did, um, but basically we were trying to say, okay, there's all these plant patents out there, and the way people are uh, patenting their plants, or one of the ways, is uh, by chemical composition. And so we were saying, okay, you know, could you actually do a difference in means test to basically say, okay, this variety, we've tested it 30 times, we've tested this variety. 30 times this one is significantly this one's chemical composition is significantly different than this chemical composition and that was how we were recommending people go about patenting their plants where you would just say okay we've tested this plant it's statistically different than all the existing patents and it would make a good patent candidate you could potentially do a, a similar sort of difference in means test with samples. Um, but I think you'd have to get think outside of the box about what means you'd be wanting to compare. And so this is why I floated last week that you may want to start looking at ratios. So, for example, we looked at it briefly that, okay, the ratio between total cannabinoids and total terpenes I think we looked at this briefly, but I wanted to say there was a linear relationship between these two, which was just kind of interesting. Um, And like I said, we only have briefly explored this. You know, maybe there's a sample that basically has a weird total cannabinoid to total THC ratio. And maybe it also has a weird beta-pinene to D-limonene ratio. Maybe you'd have, and I think this is kind of what uh, our friend, John Abrams over at the the CESC uses. He uses a set of ratios to kind of see if lab results look logical. Oh, Rick. Yeah, sorry, I didn't want to cut you
1: off, but I wanted to agree with what you were saying in terms of like the lab sampling and, and having certain profiles or... You know like the mint profile and attributing uh, that to a, a specific terpene and then that to a specific uh, um, strain or or genetic and be able to track that also with with things like hop viral it's it's important now to also for clean cuts or things coming out of tissue culture labs uh, to establish a chain of custody. So having a way to do that as well um, is all interesting. But right now none of that data is, is or at least for like the hop latent testing. I noticed a bunch of like startup uh, testing labs where they can send you at home or they'll have people come on site. There seems to be kind of a a lot of uh, data streams for where that's going. And so right now it's not you know readily available or, or in a database that I'm aware of. <clears throat> but that's the sort of stuff that, that interests me. Uh, And then also, you know, if, you know, you're working with, you know, trusted data in in terms of testing of of those genetics as well, collecting information from the facilities such as light spectrum, um, medium that they use, different types of um, fertilizers or whatever, and how that may express down the line with different uh, cannabinoid profiles or, you know, uh, understanding that relation as well or terpene profiles.
0: I love it, Rick. And you are right at the frontier and you brought up many good points. And I think what you hit on is what's the starting point? Get the data, organize it, curate it, and then of course, get around to analyzing it. You're right on the path, right? And that is right now there's poor data. So first things first, get it. Um, So I love that. And then you raise issues like, oh, late and Viroid. And this is why I was saying, Well, there's a million co-founding effects going on, right? And so, for example, oh, maybe you're looking at total cannabinoids to terpenes, and that's a really good ratio, and one sample's off. Well, maybe we're not taking into consideration hopslate and viroid. Maybe the viroid interferes with these standard ratios. So maybe you think, oh, maybe somebody's falsifying results for this one sample, but, oh, you go take a closer look and it's like, oh, maybe these plants had trace amounts of, or maybe these plants were slightly infected with the virus and they just weren't producing terpenes uh, to uh, normally or something of that sort. Once again, it's all investigation. That's part of what's interesting about being a data scientist, right? We wear many hats right? As a good researcher, we have to kind of investigate these. You know, don't jump con- to conclusions, but I think we've got some some fruitful things to work on. So Isaac, I love that you've you've pointed this, this problem out because as I said, you know, we're all about solutions here. So let's, you know, put our minds together and see if we can't think about ways to help the laboratories out. I think we can use statistics to help. Well, I think we've got Plenty to work on. So for Rick, we're going to be looking at strain names just to try to find crosses because lineage is something that I've been curious about looking at. Just basically seeing, oh, can we trace all the hazes back? I'm, like, working on scraping data from a few different
1: locations. There's um, a few sites out there that keep pretty uh, detailed tracking of, of like, um, a strain and, and its lineage. Uh, and there's also Reddit, uh, where there's individual subreddits with posts that you can pull strain names and, and other stuff uh, out of. So I'll try to contribute to the GitHub and make sure that anything that... Uh, I collect
0: will be available there also. Phenomenal, Rick. We'll try to come back next week because genetics and lineages on the agenda. Somehow it got pushed back uh, from today, but definitely next week. And then we'll also end up looking at consumers in the next week, because last week we just did a, a back of the envelope estimate of how many consumers there were in Washington state, but we can do a much better job of that given some some data that's out there, so I, I was thinking, and hey, we can even do some consumer analysis. So those are the things that are coming up. We'll get to the bottom of this lab shopping for help Isaac out, help uh, good old MCR Labs out. So we'll we'll help out as, as much as we can. Then of course genetics and lineage and cannabis consumers. So those are the topics coming up in the coming weeks. It's going to be a fun fun time. So we'll end the end the year out strong just like to thank you all for helping advance cannabis science couldn't do it without you your eyes your ears your brilliant minds so thank you all for coming together to the canalytics cannabis data science meetup so thank you